This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack. We'll get an update from Misha. They just wrapped up their winter championships, and now they turn their attention to spring activities. Uh, big money maker, basketball and wrestling for communities uh, like Columbia and Springfield. We'll talk about that. AAA Missouri awarded six high schools $15,000 as their students take a pledge to not text and drive. State Representative Michael O'Donnell is a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy serving as an intelligence officer. He talks to Elisa Nelson about 9-11 inspiring him to join in one of his most memorable military stories. So how long have you been in the Navy? Uh, it'll be 18 years this month. So uh, March yeah, March 30th is my, my anniversary. Well, happy anniversary. 18 years. Thanks. So what inspired you to join the Navy? Um, so my, my normal uh, career is I'm a, I'm a bond trader for an investment firm. And in 2001, I was in New York for that, that company uh, visiting some of our branches. And uh, my plans for the week of September 11, that Tuesday, uh, I was planning on visiting one of our branches out on Long Island and then uh, going into the Trade Center to meet with a guy I had traded bonds with for about eight years. Uh, his name was Carl Smith, and he worked at a firm called Cantor Fitzgerald, which was on the 104th floor of Tower One. And uh, Carl didn't make it home that day, and I came home from that experience feeling like I should be doing something, but it didn't make a lot of sense. A guy in his 30s joining the military, um, and I just kind of thought it would go away. Um, but it, it didn't. And so I started looking into some of the, the military uh, options for someone in their 30s and stumbled across some programs in the Navy and had always had kind of an interest in the Navy, but um, never never ended up uh, serving in any capacity in the military. And so uh, you know, continued to watch the country in the middle of two wars and uh, the feeling just that feeling just kept getting stronger and stronger. And so ultimately in 2005, I ended up enlisting through an advanced pay grade program uh, to do uh, to do intelligence. Um, and so yeah, in 2000, March of 2005, I enlisted. So where did that take you? So um, initially, I went through uh, went through this advanced pay grade program. So I started off as an E4 in the Navy, we call that a petty officer third class, and went through several levels of, of training and um, really wanted to uh, focus my, you know, you could pick different career paths within intelligence, but I really wanted to do ground intelligence. So it seems kind of strange that a Navy guy would be focusing on intelligence for folks on the ground, but um, the, the Navy supports a lot of different ground forces, everything from CBs who do construction to rivering guys, which uh, tend to, to be on like the river and waterways, the inland waterways, uh, Navy SEALs, any of the expeditionary forces, maritime civil affairs. And that's really where I wanted to go. Um, but the problem for me was I was in the reserves, and in order to get that school, you had to be actually assigned to one of those units. And so once I kind of got the disappointing news from my boss that, that I wasn't going to be able to go to that school, I started looking at other options. And then out of nowhere, my commanding officer called and said, hey, do you still want to, do you still want to go to that school? And I was like, yes, sir, I do. He said, well, we've got this deployment 
that would allow you to go to that school before uh, you would you would end up ultimately going to Iraq. And I said, sir, hang up the phone and tell them you've got to volunteer. I don't want to miss this opportunity. And so that was kind of the beginning of, of me getting to do what I wanted to do, uh, work with ground forces in an intelligence capacity, and then ultimately going downrange um, to where I ended up in western Iraq uh, in 2008 in the Anbar province. And that was right right around the time of the surge in 2008 when, when President Bush uh, pushed a lot of folks downrange to try to uh, regain control in, in Iraq. And a big part of that was in the western part of the country was what we call the Anbar Awakening. And, and Al-Qaeda had really started to do some nasty things to the folks in, um, in the western part of the, the country. And there was, they were really, it was a Sunni stronghold, but the, the folks there didn't really like what was going on. And so they kind of teamed up with U.S. forces to push, push those folks out. And that's that's what we called the the Anbar awakening, when the, the the locals, you know, came around to realizing, hey, these these folks that are here, are not good for us. We need to get them out. And so there was a, a big push to to do that. Uh, that ultimately, then after that uh, that stint, I ended up in uh, Afghanistan, in Kandahar, Afghanistan, where I got to do counter narcotics uh, intelligence with the British, and I was in a in an environment that was British, Australian, Canadian, U.S., and Dutch, and a really great environment just to work with folks from, from different countries. Um, you know, we always hear folks refer to, you know, our military as the best of the best, and, you know, that's not that's not something unique to the U.S. The, those other countries are really sending some really sharp people uh, in, in their military downrange as well, and it was really a really great experience for me. State Representative Michael O'Donnell of St. Louis County it joined Show Me Today. He's a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy Reserve, uh, serving as an intelligence officer. I'm Elisa Nelson. Now, initially, just talking about what inspired you to get involved, um, did you work alongside many other soldiers who joined as a result of what happened on 9-11? No, not not really. And I I know when I went to boot camp, I, there was one other guy, and we still we still stay in touch. Um, that we were about the same age. I think he's like a month older than me. Um, but you know, a lot of I would run into some folks like that 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 were inspired. But you also see stories of um, of folks that that responded that way. I remember the story of a Marine who 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 enlisted right after nine eleven. Um, you know, same kind of situation where he had a, a good job, had, really had no need to, to join the military other than just, you know, felt that calling. Um, and the, unfortunately, the reason he got a lot of attention was because he was he was killed and killed in action. Um, but you would see stories like that. And, and you know, for some folks, uh, people like me found that very inspiring that that you know, somebody else was kind of feeling the same thing. And took action, and that's a lot of why I, you know, I saw those examples and thinking, well, maybe I'm not as crazy as, as I'm, I'm thinking maybe I am. So, um, you know, some of those stories are, are inspiring and, and definitely did help, kind of push me over the top to, to do and to go ultimately where I decided to go. Now, being in your 30s, uh, what did your family think of you having this, uh, this? 
feeling this calling in your 30s? Um, I, it was it was definitely difficult for my wife. Um, you know, two, we had two kids. Uh, that was difficult. You know, the the prospect of of losing you know the the you know, the husband in the household was not all that exciting to her. Um, and you know, I think that was a big part of of the delay for me was it just didn't seem it wasn't rational. It wasn't something that that people were doing it it just didn't make sense and you know i don't i i can't really tell you what people were thinking i i kind of have in my head what i think they were thinking and i really think people thought i was crazy and it's it, it's just not you know it's just not something that, that people do um ultimately my wife relented she you know she said i understand why you want to do this um i don't like it but i i understand why you feel this way and I understand that the feeling hasn't gone away and that you just feel like you have to do something. Um, I don't like it, but I, I understand. Show me the day. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact. Like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. 
The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. Show me today. State Representative Michael O'Donnell of St. Louis County it joins Show Me Today. He's a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy Reserve, uh, serving as an intelligence officer. I'm Elisa Nelson. Um, so what's your memorable or one of your most memorable military stories? Um, I, I would probably say one of the missions we had when we were in Iraq I was deployed with with Seabees, um, and they're they're typically builders, and and they they you know were were building uh, building out bases in in Iraq and, and doing things like um, drilling wells and, and things like that for the locals as kind of a hearts and mind campaign. But one of the missions we got tasked to participate in was an operation to return the or an effort to return the only. Uh, person who was MIA from the first Gulf War, there was a uh, Navy aviator, uh, and his, uh, Captain Spiker, who was captain at, at the time, he was a lieutenant when he was shot down, um, but he was he was declared missing on the first night of operations, the air operations, uh, over Iraq during the first Gulf War, and um, crazy small world moment that the group of us that were preparing to go to the the school I mentioned earlier, we were in. We were out to out to dinner um, after having completed all of our uh, basically our admin stuff uh, for pre-deployment, and we were getting ready to head to that school. And we went out to dinner to celebrate. Uh, one of the other guys in our units, we had myself, and he had the same birthday. The only thing is, I was turning 40, and he was turning 20. And at the dinner. The, um, the 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 guy who was turning 20 looked at our boss and said, "Hey, sir, who's who's that on your bracelet?" And he had a a, a MIA bracelet, and um, and he said, "Oh, you probably wouldn't recognize him. Uh, it's Lieutenant Spiker. He was shot down on the first night of the Gulf War, and uh, you know we're still looking for him." And <laughs> like shocking response from the 20 year old was. I know exactly who he is. That's my uncle. That's my mom's brother. And that was kind of this, this moment that we're like, whoa, that's a crazy coincidence. And then later on when we were downrange, my boss said to me, hey, I need you to look at this operation we're going to be part of. You can't discuss it with anybody. It's classified, but you specifically can't discuss it with the, the 20-year-old. And that's when I learned that we were going to have a piece in this mission that was hopefully going to bring him home. Because, and, and the reason the lieutenant told me that was because uh, he wanted to, to discuss it with the, the 20-year-old um, himself so that it wasn't just something that he stumbled across. And so we we got to be part of this mission, and um, you know we we did the, our we took our role in the in this mission, and the, the mission was was done, and then we were just kind of waiting for the results. And through that time, we finished our deployment. We we rolled out. Uh, we were back home. In fact, I was headed out west with my family for vacation, 
And uh, my wife was in the shower in the hotel room, and I was just sitting on the edge of the bed watching the news. And the news report came across that, that they had located Spiker's remains and um, that he was essentially going home for, for a burial. And I immediately jumped on the phone and, and called uh, the guy who was my boss and said, we got him, sir. We got him. We found Spiker. And, um, you know, just just that whole the whole craziness of the connectivity of that, the fact that his, his nephew was, was deploying with us, his nephew was on the mission. Um, he actually got to go out to the site that they were uh, near the crash site where, where some of the work was, was taking place. Um, just the whole crazy coincidence of all of that just brings back some, some really great memories. That's, uh, like you said, very special. I want to go back to... Um... And nine eleven, were you so were you at Ground Zero then? I was not. So I was about I was about thirty minutes away. Uh, my I wasn't planning to be there until later in the day. I was my plan was to uh, meet Carl and and actually go up in the the trade center and uh, just kind of hang out on their their trading desk on the one hundred fourth floor, and then he and I were going to go out to dinner and have some laughs. Carl was a was a really fun guy to to hang out with. He was. I, I trusted him as far as trading trading went. Um, really thought highly of him. I respected him, but uh, he and I just we got to be friends. And, and you know, you spend every day talking to to the folks on the telephone uh, like we do in, in the bond business. They develop friendships. He and I would would talk about our kids. Uh, his kids were a little older than mine. He had two boys, uh, and they were in scouting and and. At some point, Carl and I struck up a conversation, and I told him how involved I was as a scouting volunteer. And so, you know, we really hit it off from that standpoint of just hearing what his kids were doing. <laughs> well, you know, you hear stories, at least I've heard stories about some people who were supposed to be in the Twin Towers on September 11th, and something happened and they weren't there. I'd like to know, like, what you were thinking, knowing that you were so close to going to the Twin yeah. Towers that day. Yeah, I think I think for me, my my focus on that day was first. I've told this to people many a time. I've never said the expression "thank God" more than I said on that day. And you, you would think, what? What are you talking about? That was a terrible, terrible day. But as as the things were unfolding, you saw that first plane hit. My first reaction was to call Carl and say, hey, if they evacuate your building, because from what we were seeing on the news, it looked like there was a, a fire. They probably evacuated the building. And I just called to say, hey, if they evacuate your building, don't wait around for me. We'll, we'll catch up you know, later in the week or something like that. Just go home and, and we'll, we'll figure out when we can connect. Well, I got a strange busy signal and never, never got to talk to Carl. But as each incident happened, I was kind of doing an accounting of my friends and where they were. And so, you know, the, the second plane hits the second tower and, you know, I had friends that, that worked at a firm there and I started doing an accounting of, oh my gosh, you know, I've got Jimmy there and I've got Jeff there, you know, you know, what, what's happening with them. And I've got, you know, this friend that's, that's right across the street. There's, there's gotta be concerns, you know, happening there. And then a building collapses and you think, oh my gosh, you know, did I lose that friend as well? And so as the day went on, you continue to hear, you know, oh, I, I ran into to Jeff at, at Penn Station. 
he he was evacuated early, but Jimmy stayed behind as part of a skeleton crew. And you learn later that Jimmy was actually on the phone with a guy on on my trading desk in St. Louis, and you know he said to him, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm probably gonna head out. We, they had evacuated Tower Two, and um, he said I'm gonna I'm gonna head out." just nothing's going to happen. And people weren't trading. They were just watching what was going on on TV and just in shock. And the, the story goes, he went to the window to look at tower one to, to take one last look at it burning. And the second plane hit his building. And, and his comment was, I thought the building was going to go over it. It hit the building so hard and slammed into it that he thought it was going to tip the whole thing over. He got, he evacuated, went, went down the stairs in 30 minutes and was 15 minutes away when his building collapsed. And so, you know, the, those of us that didn't know where he was at that point thought for sure that he, he perished at that point. But ultimately, you know, again, somebody said, oh, I saw Jimmy at this restaurant outside of Penn Station, and, and he's, he's okay. It's like, oh, thank God. That's, those are really good points. And I want to thank you for your service and your sacrifice. Um, I can imagine that you sacrificed a lot, whether that be a comfy bed, uh, holidays with your family, carpet. <laughs> I, I say carpet because that that's one of my that's one of my husband's things. <laughs> he was so he was he was deployed last year and he missed carpet and couldn't wait yeah. to sleep on carpet. And I think yeah. um, I think the life, the military life, um, really makes you think about okay. Is, this is kind of a first world problem. This is not a third world problem. You know what I mean? I think it puts yep. those kinds of things in perspective when um, folks like you really give up a lot and you do it so selflessly. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Yeah, my, my story in common is I missed my dog more than I missed anyone because I, I got to talk oh. to my wife. I got to see my kids on video. But the dog I didn't get to interact with. And so when I came home and she ran around the house like crazy, I was oh. just really happy to see her. That oh. was, that was that my carpet-related carpet story. <laughs> Everybody needs a carpet-related story. That's State Representative Michael O'Donnell. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri.